Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is our 55th episode, which means we are back to flyover country. After doing a complete sweep of the upper Midwest, we are back to Wisconsin. Now, having lived in Minnesota most of my life, I have to say Wisconsin while I shudder a little inside, and that's because for those that aren't from the area, Wisconsin and Minnesota have healthy rivalries in many aspects, especially sports. The rivalry between the Green Bay Packers and Minnesota Vikings is well known, as is the rivalry between the college sports. If I'm being honest, Minnesota has been on the losing end of most of these rivalries over the years, but at the end of the day, I can at least say that I don't live in Wisconsin. Just kidding, all you cheeseheads. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. When most people think of a hostile takeover of a business, they think of some men and women in suits walking in force into a board meeting and announcing they had just purchased the company at the behest of its shareholders. While today's version of a hostile takeover involves stocks and a lot of lawyers, in 1824, a different form of hostile takeover occurred in northern Wisconsin. In 1794, a French-Canadian fur trapper named Stanislaus Chappy Chapu had established a trading post along what is now the border of Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. But in 1824, a quarrelsome and belligerent ex-American fur company employee named William Farnsworth conducted a hostile takeover of the trading post. He was married to Marinette Chevalier, the daughter of a local Menominee Native American chief. With the backing of the local Native Americans, who vastly outnumbered the fur traders and a few settlers at the time, Farnsworth was able to throw Chappie out of his business and take over business in the area. Queen Marinette, as she became known, took a learned interest in the art of business and grew the company as more settlers came to the area. The county of Marinette was named after her influence during the mid-1850s as the frontier turned into settled land. Marinette County is known for its dense forests, beautiful lakes, and rapid-filled rivers. One of these rivers, the Peshtigo River, runs through the middle of a county park named McClintock Park. This public refuge has a small campground and four wooden bridges that cross the river at various points and is nicknamed the Bridge Park. But the park is also known for a bloody incident that occurred in the summer of 1976. An engaged couple was hunted and killed almost 50 years ago, but thanks to breakthroughs in DNA technology, the case was solved in 2018 and a stone-cold killer was brought to justice after over 40 years. This is the case of the McClintock County Park murders. McClintock County Park sits midway between Green Bay, Wisconsin and the border with the UP of Michigan. It's in the middle of rural northeast Wisconsin, an area known for its trees and their love of the Green Bay Packers football team. On July 9, 1976, Americans were still celebrating the bicentennial, as the country had just turned 200 years old a few days prior. An engaged couple, 25-year-old David 
Sheldes and 24-year-old Ellen Matthews had just set up their tent in the campground and were getting ready to go for a walk through the park. They had first tried to camp at Goodman Park, another county park four miles to the north, but had found the small campground there was already full. Parkgoers had seen the car driven by David circle through the camping sites before leaving the park. The couple had better luck at McClintock, finding a site near the campground entrance to park their car and set up their tent. With their site established, the pair set out to hike through the park and across the bridges, but they stopped by an outdoor latrine for a quick relief before they set out for the day. While David waited outside the bathroom for Ellen, he was shot in the neck with a 30 caliber rifle round, killing him on the spot. The suspect then either waited for Ellen to exit the bathroom or ordered her out of the bathroom and walked her at gunpoint to a secluded location off the trail. He ordered her to undress and sexually assaulted her. While she was getting dressed, he shot her twice in the chest and quickly left the area. A park maintenance worker found Dave's body near the bathroom at 2.30 that afternoon. They were likely linked to the campsite where it would be obvious a man and a woman had traveled together and set up camp for two. A quick search was conducted along the trails, but despite having late evening light, Ellen's body was not discovered that evening. The following morning, a group of searchers found her body under a grove of trees and the area was closed off as a crime scene. Investigators from the Marinette County Sheriff's Office looked into possible motives. David worked in the Green Bay Press Gazette Circulation Department, and Ellen worked in the library at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and nothing in their lives indicated they were anything other than random targets. And I'll, I'll take an aside, we just covered the case of Ingrid Lynn, and whenever we talk about one of these cases, I think it's important that I bring up, as I brought up many times before, that there's, in most circumstances, the police officers, when they come across a homicide victim, have no prior knowledge about this victim's life. Now, there are cases where, if it's a known criminal or, unfortunately, a repeat victim of something like domestic violence, there may be a chance that the police have had... You know, contact with this victim before but in most cases the a victim of homicidal violence if they don't have any contact with the police there's no way for the police to have any idea what is going on with this person's background at the time so just like in the case of ingrid lynn the police are going to have to look at a bunch of potential different motives here now it's pretty clear that Ellen was sexually assaulted in this case and then killed so they're gonna pretty quickly look at sexual assault as being the motive for the crime and then the, the murders obviously David is killed because it's gonna be harder to commit the sexual assault if he's alive and then Ellen is killed as a cover-up to the crime but they also have to rule out you know is there a jealous ex-boyfriend of Ellen did he find out that they were engaged and common saying in, in these control situations is if if i can't have her no one can and was that situation going on here was there a work rivalry did you know is a sexual assault secondary to david getting some type of a promotion or did david have to fire somebody at work recently that was making threats against him so all these things need to get looked at in these 
cases to see if there's a motive because what the scene is presenting is a potential for a crime of opportunity where sexual assault was the motivating factor but you have to rule out other things uh, because those other things might be your best chance at solving this if, if one of them pans out to be a, a true possible motive so the police are going to look into this but all they're going to have is the fact that this was a sexual assault and the fact that you know occurred in a, a county park and likely you i should say usually when these types of crimes occur i know at some point we'll cover once it's once the court stuff has worked its way through the the case out of delphi the the monan bridge case um, and in that case just like this one we're going to find out a lot of the times when a, a killing occurs in a county park or a city park where there's these trails and it's kind of a isolated area the killer's not a stranger to the area they're usually pretty familiar with the park itself the the how the trails set up where where they could potentially commit an ambush from and so that usually implies that it's somebody who's local and remember the couple's from green bay um, which is about i think it's about 70 miles from green bay to this park so there doesn't appear likely a connection between the suspect and the victims but that's something police have to look at and they're also going to interview several people throughout the the park um, again this is you know five days after the fourth of july there's probably been some people that have been in and out of the area camping relaxing partying that kind of stuff so they're going to talk to some of the people in the area to see if anybody knows of anything and they actually find a couple of brown county sheriffs that have been camping in the area a few nights before and they recalled seeing a man they thought was stalking them in the woods outside their campsite they went to their tents to receive some retrieve some firearms and by the time they returned to where they had seen him he had disappeared investigators came to believe the suspect was likely hunting campers for some time looking for just the right moment and the right victim to strike a search of the crime scenes revealed the suspect had left behind semen on ellen's clothing and the sample was collected and stored in reality this was about the only part of the crime scene investigation i could find in the source material was that they had collected the semen from her shorts and her pubic region and how they knew it was a 30 caliber uh, hunting rifle bullet i don't know it may be that they recovered some of the bullets from the victims or it may be that casings were left behind but it just didn't mention it one way or the other so all we know is that they, in 1976 they collected this dna and it's 1976 so it can't yet provide a dna profile and but they're going to keep it and despite investigators looking to leads all over northeast wisconsin and the upper peninsula of michigan the case went cold all investigators had to work with was an eyewitness sketch of a man seen in the area with a rifle on the day of the murders investigators did catch a break when they found the suspect is what is referred to as a secretor or male with secretions of blood and other body bodily fluids in this case semen this allowed investigators to learn his blood type 
which is not a tool for an exact match, but it was used to eliminate several suspects along the way. And again, I don't know if we've talked about this or not, but blood typing was a very common way to include or completely exclude possible suspects in your suspect pool um, pre-DNA. And that's because just like we can't change our DNA, we can't change our blood type. So if you had uh, suspect blood in some capacity left at a crime scene, you could get it down to a blood type. And some blood types are more common than others, but if the person has an uncommon blood type, when you compare them to other suspects down the road, if that rare blood type matches, it doesn't mean that that 100% is your suspect, but it means you're probably gonna keep looking at that person as a potential suspect, whereas if the blood type doesn't match, you can exclude that person as your suspect and move on to other suspects. In 1991, the Sheriff's Department took another look at the 25-year-old case and released an age-progressed version of the suspect sketch. This brought renewed interest to the case and 50 new leads, but nothing panned out. The investigators looked at killers from across the country that committed similar crimes to see if they could be tied to the area around the time of the murders, but again found nothing. And it's not necessarily to say that a you know, roaming killer. I mean, it's possible, I guess, they could be looking at. It could be that a guy just happened to be camping in the area or a drifter was moving through the area and had a hunting rifle and shot these this young couple and then they're looking for a similar uh, rifle-style killing somewhere else. But again, most of the investigators believe this guy was local. So looking at serial killers or looking at other similar crimes across the nation was more of just doing due diligence on the investigation i think they always thought that they were going to find their their killer uh, closer to home with advances in dna profiling and a growing number of offenders being entered into the nationwide criminal database known as codis investigators in the mid-90s submitted their suspect profile despite renewed hope The profile didn't match anyone upon entry, and ongoing checks never identified a new matching profile. So when you have a suspect profile, a good suspect DNA profile, you can put it into CODIS. And CODIS is going to check any pre-existing DNA profiles for felony offenders of certain crimes that are entered into CODIS. If your unknown suspect DNA upon entry to CODIS matches one of the already predetermined known samples, then boom, you've got your match, you've got your suspect. However, CODIS will, as it brings in new uh, offender profiles, CODIS will run those against previously unknown profiles to see if any of those match up. So it's an ongoing system uh, that will eventually catch uh, potential uh, suspects down the road. I had a couple cases that I worked over the years where I had a good DNA profile, (laughs) sent it in, and received word that there was not a match in the system, but the profile was good enough to be put into the system. And three, four, five years later, I would receive notification that uh, somebody who had been caught, convicted of a crime, and, and... as a result, their DNA was put into CODIS, was now a match to my sample from 
it was three, four, five years prior. So it's it's a way for investigators to make sure their DNA profile has the best chance of catching a suspect. And so any of these unknown suspect profiles are going to sit there and code us hoping one day to, to get a match. In 2018, advances in the field of forensic genealogy gave investigators hope once again. A detective with the sheriff's office called Parabon Nano Labs in Virginia to see if their DNA profile could tell them anything about their suspect. Two weeks later, the submitted DNA profile was analyzed and scientists advised investigators that they were most likely looking for a white suspect with Northern European ancestry and he would likely have fair skin, blue eyes, and reddish brown hair. Unfortunately, this profile fit a lot of the population of Northeast Wisconsin, and even the estimated digital facial look of the suspect was not much help. So Parabon Nano Labs is this well-known labs. They're being used more and more in some of these high-profile cold cases, and they can look at certain DNA markers, and those are the, the DNA blueprints or parts of the DNA, I should say, that uh, blueprint the way that we look. And so everybody with blue eyes is going to have similar DNA markers uh, in their DNA blueprints for eye color. And for other areas, your the amount of melatonin in your skin, the color of your hair, all of these are, are potential markers, everything to how you're how big your nose is, how big your ears are, all the things that make us look somewhat like our parents, uh, that's all written in our DNA. And so the, the, the Parabon Nano Labs can take a look at these markers and generate a somewhat accurate suspect profile, uh, both in face and descriptors, based on the DNA. Unfortunately, as I said, in this case, the descriptors are pretty common. This area of Wisconsin was settled by, well, first French Canadians, but then uh, eventually a lot of Norwegians, uh, Scandinavian, uh, Northern European peoples because it was very similar to the area of their homeland. And so he's basically you know, matching most of the population here. But then four months later, a scientist at Parabon Analabs called investigators to see if they wanted a genealogist to take a closer look at the case. They said yes, and two months later, the genealogist had narrowed the suspect pool to a single family that resided in the Green Bay area. Using established DNA profiles for family members, the genealogist said the profile had to have originated from the sons or grandsons of a man named Edward Venowen Hoven, and I'm going to completely butcher this last name a few times I have to say it, but it's V-A-N-N-I-E-U-W-E-N-H-O-V-E-N is the full last name. Investigators started with the man's four sons. The first son, Cornelius, lived in the town of Suamico. Investigators did a trash pull of his home and sent three items that likely contained his DNA to the state crime lab. The profile was close, but not a match. And when they do these trash pulls, I believe we've talked about these before as well, but basically the Supreme Court has ruled that once you put trash out on your curb to be picked up by the 
garbage company or recycling company, whoever it is, you've deemed it at that point to be abandoned. You don't have a right to privacy of those items anymore because somebody eventually is going to come along or even in the case of wind could blow it over and send that garbage out into the into the world. So once you put that out on the curb, it's no longer requires a search warrant or anything to to take items from there. And so if I don't know if this Cornelius lived alone or it, in the case of sometimes people will observe somebody smoking and then pull cigarette butts out of these um, trash pulls uh, because the cigarette butts are a great source of DNA. Uh, but they're going to take three items and usually it's something that you know um, the mouth is going to rest on. So beer cans, soda cans, uh, straws, like I said, cigarette butts, anything along those lines, you can grab those and send those in and you usually get a pretty good DNA profile off of them. Uh, the second son, Edward Jr., who went by Sylvester, was close friends with a retired sheriff's deputy, and investigators learned that Sylvester liked to stop by and have coffee with his friend, and once the retired deputy was informed of what was going on, he agreed that the next time Sylvester came over for a cup of coffee, he would hang on to the coffee cup and not clean it and give it to police for a DNA uh, swab. And this happened, and when the results came back from the coffee cup, it was another close profile, but not a match. The third son they focused on was Raymond. He lived in an extremely remote area, and they had no direct links to his DNA. So in order to surreptitiously obtain a sample, they came up with a smart but risky plan. On March 6, 2019, a deputy sheriff knocked on Raymond's door. When he answered, the deputy explained to him that he was with the sheriff's office and they were doing a public opinion survey on law enforcement. The survey asked generic questions, and when Raymond was done with the survey, he was advised to lick the envelope to seal it so the deputy couldn't see his answers. The deputy watched Raymond lick the seal and close the envelope. And this was a pretty genius plan, in my opinion, because it's going to be difficult to get somebody to knowingly give you an item with their DNA on it. So you have to create a ruse that is that part of the overall ruse is getting DNA from that suspect somehow. So when you think of it, you know, it's not like they're going to go over there and offer him a drink. It's not that they're going to go over there and offer some way to, to get a him to introduce that DNA uh, through some means that and you don't want to risk if you offered him some type of a drink a you'd have to get the drink back somehow which is going to be awkward or weird so coming up with this idea of making him lick this envelope and and the fact that it's a survey so the last thing they want is you know for these deputies or whatnot to be able to alter the survey or look at people's answers so it makes sense that you would have a sealed envelope uh, in a survey situation the reason I say it's risky is just because it's a remote area and you're approaching a, the house of a guy that you're pretty sure could have committed these double murders. You don't know what his feelings towards law enforcement are. You don't know if he's going to be receptive. You don't know if he's going to do the survey. He could tell you to pound sand and get out of his yard. And then, then any other future attempts to go after him 
uh, for his DNA is going to look even more suspicious. So it was risky, but in this case it did work out. And a swab was taken from the sealed area, sent off to the state lab, and roughly 42 years after the murders, the investigators learned they had identified the suspect from the murders. A few days later, a search warrant was conducted at Raymond's home, and a 30 caliber rifle, as well as several rifle cartridge cases, were removed from the home. Raymond was taken into custody and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of sexual assault. The sexual assault charge would eventually be dropped due to being well past the six-year statute of limitations that existed at the time. And this is, again, something that I believe it's because the crime occurred in 1976 that it was the statute of limitations at the time the crime occurred was six years because I can't imagine that we that many states right now currently have a statute of limitations on something like sexual assault, especially one as short as six years, given what we're seeing with DNA. I mean, I, I mentioned some cases where I had DNA and I sent in and it took CODIS four or five years to come back with a, an eventual match. And so between the time of the crime and the time that's submitted, the time the match is made and then you locate your suspect, you could be outside of that six years real quick, uh, even by today's standards. So I'm assuming it's based off of the statute of limitations at the time the crime was committed, uh, meaning that, that those ran out in 1982. And so... But there is no statute of limitations of first-degree murder, so he's going to face those. So who is Raymond Van Owenhoven? And not much is known about his past. In 1957, he, when he was 20 years old and married, he was arrested for attacking two teenage girls. And he would actually spend six months in jail after the 16- and 17-year-old girls identified him as their attacker in two separate instances. He told the judge he was only trying to scare the girls, but when it comes to the 16-year-old girl, he struck her on the back, face, and shoulder, possibly trying to knock her down or knock her unconscious. And the 17-year-old was attacked while in Raymond's car and only escaped by throwing herself out the moving vehicle. So from the sounds of it, the 16-year-old girl was walking along the, the road when he attacked her. and. It's possible the 17-year-old was hitchhiking or he offered her a ride. And then he began to attack her and she jumps out of this, this moving car. So he's showing a propensity back in 1957 when he was 20 years old and married to attack young women. And he would spend those six months in jail as a result of these attacks. It said a few years later he pled guilty to failing to provide child support to his wife and their one-year-old daughter. And then there's really not much else in his history. So by doing the math, in 1976, he would have been roughly 40 years old and the father to multiple children. And the attack was clearly sexually motivated and it's unknown if he had any other victims throughout the years. After his arrest, neighbors were interviewed that seemed shocked that the elderly Raymond could have committed such a horrendous crime. They described him as being mostly nice and helpful, although several did admit that he was a mean drunk and had only quit drinking recently for health reasons. He appeared in court on March 22, 2019 and pled not guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. His trial began on June 19, 2021 and it lasted six days. 
The judge had already ruled the DNA evidence against Raymond was admissible, but his prior arrest for the assaults on the teenage girls was not admissible. And this is something we've talked about in the past during these pre-trial hearings, because a lot of people want, will ask why somebody's arrested in this case in 2019 and the trial, it takes two years to get to trial. And that's because there's a lot of pre-trial back and forth going on here where the prosecuting attorneys have, are trying to enter every bit of evidence they have against the suspect and the defense attorneys are trying to get every bit of evidence that that is against their client tossed out and ultimately usually there's going to be wins on both sides as in this case i'm sure the prosecution wanted to bring these attacks on these girls back in 1957 into the trial to say look he's attacked girls before likely with a sexual motive back then and now we have his dna on a a sexual assault and murder 20 years later and the judge is going to have to make rulings on everything that is put forth by both the prosecution and defense in a way that it creates a fair trial and follows other case law so that there can't be appeals, especially on the part of the defense later on, saying that there's a mistrial because this shouldn't have been allowed in or this, you know, that should have been allowed in, but it wasn't type of a deal. And and in this case, they really argued about this DNA evidence because clearly without the DNA evidence, there I don't know how much they had of a case against him. You know, they had the rifle, which was a matching caliber, but a 30 caliber rifle is not an uncommon hunting rifle. It didn't say anything about ballistic matches. And again, I don't know how they knew back in 1976 that this was a 30 caliber rifle, if they had rifle or if they had casings back then. But it didn't seem like they had anything in this point that was in terms of ballistic evidence that linked that rifle to the shootings. It seemed as if this entire case was going to come down to DNA. And so that's really why his defense team went after trying to get this DNA tossed out and will continue to do so even after the trial. So, But we'll get to, get to that later. Uh, Raymond's defense team attacked the lack of physical evidence that pointed to him murdering the young couple. They would make the outrageous claim that Raymond had a consensual sexual encounter with Ellen, which is how his DNA was left at the scene, and the DNA did not prove he killed her. And so this is going to be the defense attorney's, really their only avenue to try to convince a jury, is to come up with this outrageous story that Raymond's DNA is on Ellen because they had a consensual sexual encounter. Because at the end of the day, they have to account for the fact that his semen is, is recovered at the crime scene. And so they, they can't do the whole, Raymond wasn't there, Raymond doesn't know anything about this case. They have to say, yes, Raymond knew Ellen, yes, they had sex, that's how his semen was found at the crime scene. But they're trying to separate the two events, saying just because he had sex with her doesn't make him the killer somebody else could have come along and killed this young couple and i think when as far as like the daughters of 
the suspect said something about, well, yeah, my, my father may have had an affair because he was married at the time, but that doesn't make him a killer. And it just further proof that people will believe just about anything or can convince themselves just about anything if they really don't want to believe the truth. And thankfully, though, the jury didn't buy this and they convicted Raymond on both murder charges. The judge would sentence the 84-year-old Raymond to two consecutive life sentences without parole, which is really a mere formality considering Raymond's age and his poor health. And Raymond died from health complications on June 17, 2022, 10 months after he was sentenced. His lawyers continue to file appeals to have his conviction overturned. They claim the collection of his DNA through the survey was an illegal seizure under the Fourth Amendment. The ruling on that appeal and ongoing appeals regarding the use of forensic genealogy to identify suspects will have long-term impacts on the future of investigations in America. And that really is a part of true crime that isn't talked about a lot, is how we get to certain aspects of the court side of things. Like a lot of people, you know, you hear Miranda warning and you don't understand where it actually comes from. And it's actually a a Supreme Court case in which uh, the suspect who was identified as Miranda in that case, they, they, they challenged the course all their arrest all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court had to make a ruling that said that when police officers make a in custody arrest that the arrestee must be given notice of their rights. So that's the right to remain silent. Uh, the right to an attorney, and they almost put the language out there. You'll hear a couple different Miranda warnings, uh, but they're mostly roughly the same um, warning that's given to everybody, and that's because somebody at some point you know, fought their conviction, appealed it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and I think that's what's eventually going to happen here is there's going to be cases like this with this forensic genealogy that's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's going to have to look at whether or not these private companies can work with the government to look through what is considered sensitive information, such as your DNA profile, and use it to compare unknown profiles from other killers, such as you know, the Golden State Killer, how it was used in this case for forensic genealogists to try to locate family trees that and just how the the police officers obtained the dna in this point at this point in case law there's nothing saying that what they did was an illegal search and seizure but if the supreme court eventually sees this appeal and they decide that obtaining somebody's dna profile through a ruse is an illegal search and seizure it, it changes the way law enforcement does their conducts their business and everything so while it won't ultimately change the course of this case in terms of uh, Raymond being deceased at this point it's not as if he's gonna fight this so that he can be released his family is gonna fight it because they don't want their father, their grandfather, uh, to have died a, a convicted you know, double murderer. Uh, if they can get his conviction overturned, 
they definitely will, but it'll be an interesting case if it makes it to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to come down and decide if there's a green light for law enforcement to continue to do this type of stuff. There's so many more cold cases out there that could potentially be solved where there's DNA and between law enforcement and these private companies searching those DNA databases, those private DNA databases to try to find family members and then turn around and use different types of ruses to gain the DNA of potential suspects to see if you can get your a match to your cold case. If the Supreme Court green lights all that, I, I suspect there'll be a lot of cold case units using this type of uh, approach to their to their cases where there is DNA. Uh, if, however, the Supreme Court rules that DNA can't be used with forensic genealogy or you can't obtain the DNA through a ruse, then law enforcement is just going to have to adjust course and figure out another way to uh, tackle these these cold cases with the DNA. But that's it on the case of the McClintock Park murders. Uh, thank you guys for listening. I am going to be taking not a break, but I am going to be tackling for the next several days here the entire Murdoch case uh, from start to finish. So I'm going to try to research it all and then get what will likely be a four-part series out on those crimes over the next few days. So if you find this podcast later in time where they're already released, not a big deal, but if, you, if you're listening to these podcasts as they come out and you're wondering where the podcast is for the next couple days, uh, I will be around. I will be working on it. I just I want to get the entire thing researched and written out before I start releasing, uh, recording, editing, and releasing the episodes just so I want to get the whole thing researched and put out there in separate parts so that I don't end up putting out four parts that don't really flow together right. So so that's what I'll be working on for the next few days. Uh, basically, the next four episodes should be for that case, and I should have them all out by the end of the weekend. So thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, feel free to write me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com. And you can find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook. Support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. And hopefully when I come back, I will <clears throat> have a better voice to get over whatever this head cold in July that I have. Um, and uh, But that's it for today. Thanks, guys, for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.